It was a bluebird sunny day on July 9th, 2017. I set out to climb Little Tahoma. We decided to descend this, this route uh, that had a steep snow slope on there. The snow being as slushy as it was, my footing gave way. There was this giant crevasse that ran the entire length of this thing. And everything I was trying to do to stop, I wasn't able to. I just kept getting faster and faster. Something came over me and I just gave up and I lifted my hands and my feet off the snow. I accepted the fact that I was going to die. A split second later, I, I realized, no, this is not how I want to go out. I dug my feet and my, my ice axe back into the snow and surprisingly I hit the edge of the crevasse and I got flipped over onto my back and I impacted on the other side. I had enough momentum that I cleared this gap and I landed on the other side of this thing. And a hundred feet later I finally came to a, a resting spot. I sat up and I'm like, holy cow, I'm alive, I'm not dead. 90 minutes after my accident, a helicopter arrived on station and airlifted me off of the mountain to the nearest hospital. I had full functionality uh, immediately after the accident. And so I, you know, you know, throwing a dart in the middle of the night at a dartboard and you can't see it, I hit a bullseye. I'm Ray Rogers. And I'm Brad Kepler. The story we just heard was the voice of Don Sarver. While sourcing guests for today's episode, an email with his near-fatal story made its way into my inbox. I've never experienced a life-altering disaster, and I imagine that the feeling of complete uncertainty as the events unfold before, during, and after something like a hurricane might feel a bit similar to sliding down the side of a mountain, unable to stop, unsure of what will happen from moment to moment. Don is not only an avid climber, he's also our colleague, and he's a volunteer with the Amazon Web Services Disaster Response Deployment Team. Man-made or natural, disasters put people on the edge. And on today's episode of Fix This, we dive into the world of disaster response and recovery, hearing from people who have played key roles in restoring a sense of community and normalcy after catastrophe. With their help, we examine how technology can guide people back from the edge. Hurricane Michael struck the Florida Panhandle on October 10th, 2018. According to the National Weather Service, Michael was an unprecedented Category 5 hurricane with maximum sustained wind speeds of 161 miles per hour. The storm caused widespread damage from Panama City Beach all the way to southwest Georgia. Don sat down with Ray to discuss his experience volunteering on a deployment to Florida in the weeks after Hurricane Michael. While there, he coordinated with local law enforcement and help provide internet access to FEMA shelters and to a FEMA support site that served upwards of 20,000 people looking to apply for food stamps and other critical services. We get sent um, into areas where there is a disaster man-made or natural to help in the recovery efforts, to provide technology assistance to nonprofits or government entities or anybody who needs help in order to restore hope and provide a level of recovery. So I'm curious, what does it look like when you are deployed? You went on a solo mission. Yeah. And so when you arrive, you first get off the plane. What happens? Like, walk me through that. Yeah. So the... The mission profile looked like this. I was to get off in Tallahassee and then drive a couple hours to this um, uh, Mariana, Florida, um, and to meet up with a couple of individuals, uh, Joe and Debbie Hillis, who run ITDRC, which is a nonprofit to provide technology assistance in, in disaster areas. We're going to go out and we're going to set up a internet access for a, a library or mm -hmm. a police station. 
in, in the course of the, the time I was in Florida, within eight days, I had drove over a thousand miles wow. where I was, I was going out and, you know, you would go out to these towns two hours away uh, and do whatever you can. And then you would hit various places on the way back. And so you arrive there, you're there for eight days, you're driving around over a thousand miles, as you said, and you're hitting these different parts of the city. What that means for the people um, after they've been hit by a hurricane, for example, if the internet is down and the police department, which you brought up, doesn't have internet, they might not be able to take calls, right? Correct. Effectively, you're giving the power back to the communities as well. Through the power of technology, you're helping set up and really helping the community rebuild in a pretty fast way. Yeah, yeah. The, the niche that we provide is we provide that technology assistance, right? We have the hotspots. We have the the connections with ITDRC to bring satellite internet to some of these spots. And, and the thing to uh, understand is we don't necessarily go to somebody's house, mm-hmm. but we'll go to that person's house if it's the community center for the, the town, right? We try to do the most impact um, for the most amount of people. So it, right. if we go into a library or a community center, um, those are, are pretty important meeting places. Uh, a police department, um, they can respond to emergencies, things of that nature. So um, it's providing that, that access to the community on hold because, let's face it, we don't have enough Internet devices to give out to 50,000 people. Of so, course, but you're trying to provide some sense of normalcy back into these neighborhoods and oh, touch yeah. as many lives as you can. Oh, yeah, definitely. And especially in this day and age with communication, right, if, if somebody cannot contact their relative from uh, across the world or across town, that that can be uh, strangulating, right? You lose a lot of hope. And so having some kind of place where you can uh, reach out and you can have two-way communication with family or loved ones um, makes a huge difference in people's lives. Again, it's, it's that idea of restoring hope. Don's story raised an interesting question for us. It isn't just the disaster survivors who need a sense of community after something like a hurricane. What about the hundreds or even thousands of first responders and volunteers? These folks work up to 16 hours a day away from their families for weeks at a time in high-stress environments. What's it like for them out in the field? And how is technology helping to ease their experience? Our colleague Randy Larson sat down with Joe Hillis, Operations Director at the Information Technology Disaster Resource Center. You may have caught the name from Don's story. The ITDRC is a volunteer-driven nonprofit in the U.S. that provides emergency communications and technical resources to communities affected by disaster free of charge. Joe is an urban firefighter with 24 years of experience. When it comes to disasters, Joe's kind of done it all. He's got both operational experience as a crisis responder and as a boots-on-the-ground guy. Here's Randy and Joe talking about what it's like to coordinate a deployment and how technology can help firefighters find a sense of community during deployments. So each year there in the U.S., I mean, there are a thousand plus disasters that you know impact communities mm-hmm. uh, of those 100 125 a year get a federal declaration ITDRC um, only responds to 10 to 15 percent of those so each deployment obviously can take on a different flavor right I mean there's it so did. many different uh, factors right. when it comes to um, a natural disaster I mean there's so many things that you can't anticipate some things more than others, right? Like a hurricane, you have some advanced warning. Um, and in other cases, it's very much, you know, 
kind of a spur of the moment thing. What is your time frame usually? What does it usually look like in terms of when you first get that piece of information to when you're actually boots on the ground in the field? Depending on the disaster, whether we had any advance notice. Um, you know, with the hurricanes, we're sometimes able to pre-stage equipment, which we did actually, you know, for Florence last year. Um, we try to be, we try to have boots on the ground the first 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it goes a little bit longer than that. But for the most part, from the time we receive a request for, for assistance the time we have somebody on the ground, whether it's an assessment team or whether it's just a full complement, um, we usually have it, you know, around 24 hours right now. So you get one request and, um, you know, it, it doesn't come when things are slow, obviously, you know, and, and the person who is giving the request um, could be under some duress. Adrenaline's pumping. And I know that your team tries to work with as you know, it's not to say that you don't work off of imperfect information. You work off of the information you're given. And right. I trust that you you confirm that that data is correct. But how do you confirm that that data is correct um, when you first get that request? Well, we usually reach back and have some sort of communication with whoever the requester was. So we do ask for two points of contact, for example, in case mm-hmm. we can't communicate with one. Um, usually, if it's a significant enough event, you know, there's going to be media around it. We have other nonprofit partners that we run with that will, you know, also share information and intel with us so we do rely on you know other sources sometimes it's social media you know sometimes we can get you know a pretty good picture of what's happening if we're seeing a ton or if we're seeing none mm-hmm. um, that'll kind of you know help us with indicators but but you know at some point we'll try to reach out to our local government partners on the ground whether you know it's a fire department or whether it's you know like I say, another nonprofit, whatever that is, just to try to get some ground truth of what's going on and what type of resources they need. You know, trying trying to source you know hardware in the middle of a disaster somewhere is just sometimes impossible. Uh, and so, you know, that's one of the benefits. And especially if they're going to need it for two, three, four weeks or whatever, that's a place we can help them. So we usually just, you know, try to sync up with them, try to figure out what the needs are, and then try to fulfill those needs. At the end of the day, are there moments in particular, you know, after you, you plug these 16 plus hour days, day after day, um, is there, I guess, is there one moment in particular that you often reflect on and, and think, wow, I really made a difference? Yeah. Um, obviously, if, if there's a bunch. Uh, you know, I obviously being a firefighter, I have a soft spot for those guys. So, sure. um, you know, we do, um, you know, um, comfort networks for firefighters. Uh, what and are those so, about? Um, well, you know, in the middle of a, a field or a mountain range or wherever it is they're fighting a fire, uh, you know, usually there are large firefighter camps. Um, they may have thousands of firefighters in there. They don't necessarily always have cell signal. They don't necessarily always have Wi-Fi. So, um, you know, we do uh, provide them with, you know, we call them comfort networks, mm-hmm. uh, ways that they can get online, um, watch a movie if that's what they want to do so tuck out. their kids in yeah tuck their kids in at night which is probably my biggest thing yeah um you know just knowing that you know they were able to you know stay in touch with their family while they're out in the middle of nowhere usually they're out for you know two to four weeks at a time and so you know it's tough on those folks and so you know i really enjoy being able to bring that connectivity you know to rural america where these guys are working um and i actually think that there was uh you said after one of um, there's a firefighter uh, i think on site who said something to the extent of i fought a lot of fires we've had a lot of these um you know interactions and i've never experience it where there's been just no hiccups right talk to me about that um yeah it was actually it was a you know any fire camp is just a it's just a full 
Um, it's a little city, sure. and uh, they have human resources there. And, and we did. It was the, the story I was telling you was a um, a guy that went with HR for the government for thirty years, and mm-hmm. he said, "I've been doing these fires for thirty years," and that um, was the first time that he'd been to a place where we had wire, you know, wireless for the firefighters. And mm-hmm. he said, "In my thirty years, we've never had zero conflict uh, inside of a fire camp." And mm-hmm. he said, "You know." He attributed that, uh, you know, to them having an outlet, you know, other than, you know, just just working, eating and sleeping. Uh, so I, I think it's something that, you know, we'll see more of. We'll be doing more of, you know, back in the day, they wanted to make sure that these guys were, you know, working and they were sleeping when they weren't working. Just, you know, just to rest up for that. But I think now just, you know, keeping in touch with friends and family has got just as much of a um, common effect on them and helping them relax and, and still be prepared to do their job the next day. You're treating these people like humans, right? Yeah, you're, exactly. you're catering to their fundamental needs so they can do their jobs better. Okay, we've made it to Act 2. In September 2017, Hurricane Maria, a Category 5 storm, caused horrific, fatal damage across Dominica, U.S. Virgin Islands, and Puerto Rico. It's been nearly two years and they are still recovering. Maria was the most intense storm to hit Puerto Rico in more than 80 years. After a devastating fatal storm like this, people are immediately tossed into complete uncertainty. Where will my next meal and water come from? When will I be able to communicate with my family? Are they safe? Where will I sleep tonight? How will I refill my medication? What next? For many, this uncertainty lingers far beyond the first month post-storm. After the initial disaster response, a long road of disaster recovery stretches ahead. Recovery can take years. Our next guest, Carrie Norton, is the long-term recovery operations director for the American Red Cross. She also happened to be on vacation with her family when Maria hit. She experienced firsthand what it was like to be in the middle of a natural disaster as it unfolded. I sat down with her to talk about what it's like to leverage technology to help communities rebuild and what happens after the news cycle stops covering a storm. Hurricane Florence and Hurricane Michael were within one month of each other in the southeast portion of the United States. And then just a a month after Michael, we were responding to the Camp Wildfire in California. In Florence alone, there were over 600,000 homes that were without power after the storm hit. Um, Those communities experienced 36 inches of rainfall, you know, Florence turned into the wettest tropical cyclone that's been recorded in the Carolinas. So when you think about the the damage and devastation that that occurs just on one incident, and then you have one happening a month later, and then a month later, it really speaks to that training and readiness that we have to be engaged in all year long to ensure that we can effectively respond to multiple disasters that are happening concurrently. Yeah, that compound effect is really emotionally heartbreaking to think about. I remember watching the news last year and seeing storm after storm, and it seemed like endless footage of physical destruction, but also this emotional heartache that the country was going through because of this. And I'm hoping that you can talk more about, like, what does that recovery look like? Because oftentimes the news cycle drops off after, you know, the storm hits, Here's what's happening immediately after. And then we don't hear much more about it. But what's happening behind the scenes there? Again, using Hurricane Florence as an example, it made landfall September 14th of 2018. So we are rapidly approaching the one-year anniversary of that event. And, And no one is likely hearing about the activity that's happening right there right now. 
Yeah, I've heard nothing. There are organizations, Red Cross and a a number of our partner organizations, government organizations that are still actively engaged in supporting clients through their recovery. With Hurricane Florence, Red Cross engaged with AWS employees to support incoming calls from these people in these communities that were affected by the storms and, and needed information on how to get back on their feet in the short term, where to find a safe place to go, how to replace emergency medications that they may need. Technology like the AWS software, I mean, it essentially enabled Red Cross to mobilize people across the globe to receive these incoming calls from our clients with a really easy integration into our system and into our process. Um, You know, took nearly 1,500 calls within a short amount of time and, you know, just thinking, you know, strategically about risk and such, you know, you really wouldn't want a call center in a disaster affected area anyway. Right. It would it just wouldn't make sense if, you know, power is limited. Resources are limited. Everything is limited. Shelter is limited. I can't imagine trying to set up a call center in a place that has already been affected by a natural disaster. Absolutely. And so it is, you know, it is it is making resources easily available to people to engage and help others. Because of technology, we are able to have real-time dashboards monitoring what is coming in and where it's coming from. So that really highlights to us, you know, perhaps there's a community that that word hasn't gotten to us yet that it was severely affected, but these calls coming in reporting damage or reporting needs in a certain area can help drive our strategy or our response objectives for the next day. It helps us understand where clients are in the process. You know, the first couple days we, you know, we have a good sense of of what type of needs people have. But as we're shifting from response into recovery, it it really helps us monitor what people are saying they need at that time. And if it makes sense, you know, we can adjust our, our service delivery appropriately to help bridge those gaps that people are identifying they're experiencing in their community. Yeah, that's really cool. Like this idea of real time data coming to you when Every day counts, every week counts. And so having the most up-to-date information at your fingertips to drive real-time strategy is powerful. There's just really no comparison from, you know, kind of the what we were doing yesterday versus today. Some of the themes that I've heard from our chat are driving efficiency, providing better services and a better customer experience, and really just providing that top-tier support that helps people in a time of sincere and great need. It it takes a lot of behind the scenes infrastructure to to provide that efficiency. And so what we are looking at in recovery very closely is how do we simplify the process and, and make this easy on our Red Cross clients, the people affected by the disaster, and also the hundreds of volunteers that are in the field delivering service. We want it to be simple for them and we want things to be client centered, uh, always keeping that at our core um, to help meet needs of people after a disaster and throughout their recovery. There's just so many 
functions and, and features that we're really taking a look at to see what can enable Red Cross to be more nimble and efficient in our services, mm -hmm. because that's what we need to be. The expectation is for us to be fast and you know, te technology is what's getting us there. Something that you said that really piqued my interest is this idea of self-service help coming on the roadmap eventually. That sounds so empowering. I can imagine a future where after a natural disaster occurs and people are affected, having the tools at their fingertips seems like it would be a total game changer. There is a, a process when you're trying to access services with an organization. You know, a lot of times you are opening up a case. Needs on that case need to be verified before, you know, certain types of assistance are provided. And so, you know, giving people tools to, to know where they are in the process and, and bring really good visibility to that with self-service options is something that we're really looking at. People's experience in the days and years after a disaster can fundamentally change with technology. Technology is at the center of bringing volunteers together from across the world, restoring means of communication for communities, allowing firefighters in the field to talk to children in at night, and delivering real-time analytics to drive long-term recovery decisions. After a disaster, technology can bring communities back from the edge. For more information, visit itdrc.org or redcross.org. And to learn more about the AWS Disaster Response Team, check out aws.amazon.com and search Disaster Response. Thanks to our guests Don Sarver, Joe Hillis, and Carrie Norton, and thank you for tuning in. If you've enjoyed this episode of Fix This, remember to rate, review, and subscribe. We'll be here on the next one.